0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This is the Science Podcast for December 1st, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up on the show, a basic approach to geoengineering. Contributing correspondent Warren Cornwall discusses research into increasing the alkalinity of the surface of the ocean as a way to capture more carbon and slow climate change. Big questions about this tactic remain though. Could we do it enough to impact climate change and will it harm ecosystems or people? Next on the show, construction robots are doing it for themselves. We hear from researcher Ryan Luke Johns about why we want robots building big rocky structures from found materials. For one, it reduces energy costs and waste associated with construction, and two, it can help us build things remotely on Mars. Okay, stop for a second and think about this question. Where is all the carbon on our planet? Where do you think most of the carbon atoms are stored? Land, ocean, or atmosphere? Take your pick. Is there more carbon in the sea, the air, or on land? If you guessed ocean, you are correct. The ocean holds about 40 trillion tons of carbon. Land is next with 3.5 trillion tons. So ocean is 40, land is 3.5 trillion, and then air, 875 billion tons of carbon. So we've gone down an order of magnitude from 40 trillion to 3.5 trillion, to 875 billion. As you can see, ocean is basically a hog for carbon. And the big question these days is how much of a hog it is? How much more will it take? And should we humans push on the processes that cause carbon to get bound up in the ocean? This Week in Science, contributing correspondent Warren Cornwall looked into these questions and what researchers and funders are doing to figure out the answers. Hi, Warren. Welcome back to the Science Podcast.
1: Hi, Sarah. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, I was. This is a sidebar. I didn't know that it was all in the ocean. I really just assumed that it was in land. So
2: it's a staggering amount. You are not alone in thinking that a lot of it is on the land, because until recently, that was where the conversation was in terms of things that humans could do to try to capture more carbon
0: what are some of the ways that the ocean can be encouraged to soak up more carbon dioxide? What's the basic premise here for the way it takes it in and how you would push that forward?
2: There's sort of biological processes, and then there's more just sort of straight physical chemistry involved. On the biological side, the basic idea is that you grow things in the ocean that absorb carbon dioxide because they're made out of carbon. And then a poop or they die. It sinks down to the bottom of the ocean and some amount of that carbon stays way down deep there for a very long time. But that's a tiny fraction of the overall carbon picture in the ocean. Most of it is molecules primarily bicarbonate and carbonate that are just floating around in the ocean.
0: Yeah. And how would you make more of that show up in the ocean?
2: One of the primary ways that people are considering this is that you are adding alkalinity to the ocean. Base. Yeah. You're making the water near the surface somewhat more basic. That can accelerate a process of CO2 being absorbed into the ocean and then converted into bicarbonate and carbonate, which then creates more room, essentially, for additional CO2 to be absorbed into the ocean. Mm-hmm. I mean, this process has been going on for a very, very, very long time. It's why there's so much carbon in the ocean. It's why the ocean isn't an acid bath. And it's why there's a lot less CO2 in the atmosphere than there would otherwise be.
0: But if you just added straight CO2 to the ocean, it would get more acidic, right?
2: That's what's happening right now.
0: Right, exactly. We're
2: adding more CO2 to the ocean. The ocean is becoming more acidic.
0: Okay, Warren, as someone who loved chemistry in college, but still suffered when learning about pH, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about some of the difficulties in reporting a story like this where you really need to understand what's going on with all these different hydrogens?
2: Yeah, you have the advantage over me because I was not somebody who loved chemistry in college. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I spent a considerable amount of time forcing very smart scientists to take me back to um, Ocean Chemistry 101, including one very patient person who Spent the better part of an hour with me as I was on Zoom drawing on a whiteboard behind me, sort of various chemical reactions. <laughs> you know, even though I gave you a very simplified scenario, which is you add alkalinity, CO two gets sucked into the ocean, creates creates bicarbonate. Away you go. But there's a whole bunch of other little steps in there. So the flip side of this, and one of the reasons why a number of people I talk to find ocean alkalinity very promising, is that Compared to the biological processes that would need to sort of unfold in order for biologically captured carbon to stay down in the ocean for a long time, this chemistry is like child's play. The biology adds a whole other set of variables that I would not have been able to sketch out on a whiteboard.
0: Are we helping the ocean (laughs) by trying to make it more basic at the surface level to encourage the absorption of CO2?
2: Well, that's one possible effect, and that's what people are looking into now. Even at this moment, not in order to capture carbon, but in order to create some kinds of sort of ecological benefits, people are adding alkalinity. So there are oyster farmers on the west coast of the United States who some years ago suddenly discovered that basically all of their little larval oysters were dying. Yeah. And through some detective work they figured it out that it was because the water was becoming more acidic and so now they change the water chemistry that's coming into where they're growing these little oysters so that's an example of adding alkalinity to benefit marine creatures people will also use it in lakes and rivers that are suffering from the damages from acid rain
0: That's like part of the question. What's going to happen to these ecosystems? Is this going to counteract the effects of ocean acidification we're seeing as we get more CO2 in the atmosphere? But there are other really big questions that people need to know the answers to to make this process something that we should consider for reversing climate change or slowing climate change, I should say. And there are a few different avenues that people are taking to try to change alkalinity? And one you talk about that you start your story with is this uh, milk of magnesia method, which maybe some people are familiar with this. I guess it's a medicine that you take. What is it and, and how does that work to change the pH of the ocean?
2: So it's magnesium hydroxide. And in the same way that it's sort of put in a bottle and sold to soothe acid in your stomach, they're basically doing that on a grand scale in the ocean or they or well they're not doing it on a grand scale yet in the ocean but but they're testing the possibility and magnesium hydroxide is just one example of a potential mineral other groups are testing other ones but i was in halifax nova scotia watching the first sustained field trial from a a uh, halifax based company called planetary technologies that is trying to figure out if they can make money by selling carbon credits, by pouring magnesium hydroxide into the ocean, triggering that increase in alkalinity that we were talking about, which would lead to this sort of cascade of chemical reactions that would cause that area of the ocean to take up more CO2 and turn it into bicarbonate. carbonate.
0: The ocean is huge. And if you want to move massive amounts of carbon out of the air by putting stuff into the ocean, how much of that stuff do you need to put in the ocean? Do you know what I mean? Like, how much carbon do we want to take out with this method? And how many molecules would we need to put in the ocean to get those molecules out of the air?
2: That's the thing about any of these geoengineering strategies. And this is a geoengineering strategy, just like people who are talking about sort of putting sulfate aerosols into the atmosphere in order to reflect sunlight. We have created a very big problem with climate change. And so any kind of solution is going to be on a similar scale. For example, we puff approximately 40 billion tons, 40 gigatons of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere every year. Generally, people who are sort of working in these fields say that in order for a technology to make any sort of measurable impact, it's going to need to be able to capture at least a gigaton
0: or a billion tons, a
2: billion tons per year.
0: That is a lot. And then so like like talking about milk and magnesia, do we need a billion tons of milk and magnesia to take a billion tons of carbon out of the air?
2: Roughly. That's one of the questions that people are trying to figure out right now, is how efficient is the process?
0: And it's not just the process of dumping it into the ocean. It's talking about going and getting a billion tons a year of this stuff out of the ground, out of a chemical factory. Yeah, All those processes take energy and may release carbon as well. So do we really need 1.5 billion tons of this stuff? That's the hard math.
2: Yes. And I'm not talking about the net outcome. I'm just saying it depends on the particular alkaline mineral, and I forget what it is for magnesium hydroxide. But the ballpark that people told me was like, it's roughly one-to-one. So you put a billion tons of magnesium hydroxide into the ocean, presuming that everything's sort of...
0: Optimal conditions. In optimal conditions,
2: you get a billion tons.
0: And then the next question is, Can you measure that and can you see that effect in the ocean? You know, how can you tell if you're actually lowering the pH of the ocean, even locally, just where you're putting that milk and magnesia in there?
2: That's why I was in Halifax. And that's why there were a bunch of scientists on a little fishing boat bobbing around in a cove there in Halifax Harbor, tossing a bunch of different sensors overboard in order to try to see if they could get a complete enough picture of what was going on with the ocean chemistry as all of this magnesium hydroxide was being poured in, that they could really wrap their arms around, okay, how much carbon can we really say is being captured?
0: There's a natural variability in the pH of ocean water, and it it can change day to day or from part of the ocean to other part of the ocean.
2: It can change depending on where you are in the ocean it can be very dynamic and so one of the challenges that these scientists are up against is even detecting the effect of adding sort of artificial alkalinity to a naturally dynamic system
0: mhm how are you going to see that signal over the over this noisy background
2: yeah yeah and
0: then there's this other interesting puzzle there aren't really even very many
2: very good alkalinity detectors out there. That is, <laughs> so there's pH detectors, but pH is a little different from measuring alkalinity. They don't just have a you know pocket-sized alkalinity detector that they can toss overboard. Even having sensors that can accurately detect this is a challenge. Not to mention the potential side
0: effects. Right, yeah.
2: You know, ecological effects. And not just ecological effects, but, you know, let's say that you're mining massive amounts of these minerals in order to put them in the ocean. What are the environmental effects of all those mines?
0: The idea of putting minerals into the ocean to change how it interacts with carbon, it does remind me of the iron fertilization experiments that people did, you know, to try to encourage algal blooms by adding iron and feeding them and getting them to capture more carbon. This was about a decade ago. And it really freaked people out. Well, you know, let's
2: back up for a minute about the iron fertilization story. There were a number of scientists who were doing basic research, which was quite interesting. They were trying to understand the sort of intersection between ocean chemistry and ocean biology. What kinds of nutrients are limiting the growth of phytoplankton, things like that? Then there was interest in the possibility that this might be a tool for capturing more carbon in the ocean. There were more than a dozen different experiments of some magnitude where research vessels went out and did this kind of thing. And then about 11 years ago, there was a US entrepreneur who put together a venture with a ship off the west coast of Canada that dumped a bunch of iron into the ocean, ostensibly in order to create a plankton bloom that would benefit salmon in the area, There was also talk about carbon capture. This really set off this firestorm around the world where people were very concerned that you were going to have renegade entrepreneurs going out into the ocean and tossing stuff overboard in order to make money without answers to a lot of important scientific questions first. Yeah. Fast forward to today where there is a big rush of interest. In pouring a bunch of minerals into the ocean in order to capture carbon, and a bunch of startup companies who are interested in it. And you have people who are looking back at that iron fertilization story and they're a little nervous.
0: Yeah, for sure.
2: And so they talk a lot about trying to proceed very, you know, step by step with a lot of scientists on board. And so I think they're as concerned as anybody. Because the fallout of that iron fertilization scandal was that it just stopped that research dead in its tracks. Right. There has not been another experiment, experimental sort of dumping of iron since then.
0: What is driving this rush towards, you know, figuring out how this works, whether or not it would work? Even
2: beyond alkalinity, there is a broader ocean carbon gold rush happening right now. Part of it was triggered. The National Academies came out with a report a couple of years ago calling for a big boost in funding and research and pointing to the potential for the ocean to soak up a lot. And then alkalinity enhancement has risen to the top as one of the most attractive for a number of reasons. It's considered relatively simple and scalable and potentially relatively safe, although stay tuned. Yeah, That's part of what's going on. But then also because of the growing urgency people are feeling about the need to tackle climate change. There are a number of people who see the opportunity to make a lot of money capturing carbon. You know, I was reading various reports trying to estimate the potential size of the carbon credit. And frankly the numbers were all over the place, but they ranged from a hundred billion to a trillion in the next, I don't know, 15 years, right? So that's a lot of money. And then you also have government agencies that are starting to get interested. The U.S. government has just started to roll out sort of basic research funding related to ocean carbon capture.
0: I think anything that touches on geoengineering gets the public up in arms because there's a sense that who's in charge, who's going to benefit, who's going to suffer, how are those things decided? You know, especially when you talk about putting aerosols in the air in order to diminish sunlight. That's kind of a global thing, and climate change is a global thing, and how do we get it together and make sure that people aren't harmed and the world isn't harmed in the long term? I don't know if ocean alkalinity falls in that same, you know, bucket where if we put too much aerosol in the air, we might damage crops or farming. I mean, is there a concern about how much base we can put in the ocean before it starts to hurt sea life, that part of the food web?
2: Yeah, there are questions about that. In terms of the sort of direct ecological effects of putting more alkalinity into the ocean, there's a few. One is just what happens when you make the ocean more basic.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Within the plankton communities, for example, are there winners and losers that in some way would alter the plankton community? And then there's also, depending on your source of alkalinity, you're also adding a bunch of particles to the ocean. So does that interfere with light transmission? Do filter feeders suck it up? A number of these minerals are not pure, right? So they might contain trace metals like nickel that could potentially be toxic to sea life. And so that's another question. Oh, wow. Yeah. These are all questions that people are working to answer.
0: The people doing this are ecologists, right? They're people who care about ocean chemistry. They're not just out to figure out, you know, a new business model. How do they feel about this approach as a way of working on slowing climate change?
2: One of the interesting things that stood out to me was a number of people at the university, Dalhousie University in Halifax, which is sort of a premier marine science university in Canada, who have dedicated most of their careers to sort of basic research, basically said, if you had asked me even five years ago if I would be doing this, I would have laughed. But I think there's a couple of things that are making these scientists pay more attention and commit a significant amount of energy to this. One, uh, not to be underestimated, is funding. There's a bunch of money that's becoming available for this. But that is coupled with a growing sense of urgency about climate change and a growing recognition that just reducing climate emissions is not going to be enough. That we are actually going to need to figure out how to take some of the CO2 that we have put into the atmosphere or that we're going to continue putting into it, even in a low emission scenario, and get it out.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Warren.
2: Oh, thanks, Sarah. It's always nice to talk.
0: Yeah. Warren Cornwall is a contributing correspondent based in Washington state. You can read the story we discussed at science.org podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Ryan Luke Johns about his science robotics paper on autonomous robot construction projects. One of the first things that I noticed when I moved to my small town is that you can't just drive through the downtown. You have to take this route that kind of takes you around the main downtown strip to get from one side of town to the other. I didn't know why at first, and you know, I asked around, and apparently there was a major gas pipeline explosion in the middle of the town in the 1960s. And besides disrupting the way the roads work, it also led to one uh, department store being built that was bomb-proof. So we have a giant department store, it's a multi-story building that can withstand, I don't know, maybe a gas pipeline explosion, which is fine until you fast forward to 2018 when the department store closes and no one wants to use the building. It's an immense bomb-proof department store. If you want to put something on the site, you're going to have to tear it down. After that, you're left with this massive amount of cement. It's so much rock and it really, it's gonna take energy to either move it or break it down and repurposing the stone or the cement with the current way that construction sites work, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. But maybe this is something that could be easier to handle in the future. Recently in Science Robotics, Ryan Luke-Johnson colleagues talk about using autonomous construction robots to build freestanding stone walls and other large structures with materials found on site, including repurposed and recycled construction debris. There's an example in a public park in Zurich where a robot built this huge stone wall with just rocks and recycled construction material. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me.
0: Sure. Okay, I'm going to start with the wall. I think most people would start with the robot, but I just want to talk about this wall. What is it? Is it a good wall? Is it a big wall? Could I lean against it or stand on it?
1: Yeah, I would say it's a pretty good wall. In, in architecture, there's a well. I would say in design, there's an old saying: if you if you can't make it good, make it big. <laughs> uh, and we definitely made it big to start, just to make sure. So this wall is about sixty-five meters long and, and six meters high. So it's you know it's at least three tall people in height, and uh, it's got almost a thousand stones, with each stone weighing about a ton. And so far, none of them have, have fallen off. And this is a, a publicly accessible park. That this isn't.
0: You could walk up to it and kick it and it's nothing's going to happen.
1: Yes. Yeah, we, we actually had to do that as, as far as safety verification goes. <laughs> Part of that entailed literally having a couple burly guys uh, pushing on stones.
0: So kind of taking a step back here, why do we want to do this? I mean, what's the advantage of having this independent system that can build walls, maybe build other things?
1: One of the challenges coming from the architecture side of things is that the construction industry is a a huge polluter. And in general, concrete represents something like 8% of the world's carbon emissions every year. Building is something like 13% of of the world's GDP. And, And the need for construction is only increasing, especially with the effects of climate change. And one of the challenges of using recycled materials, so for example, these dry stone walls have been constructed for millennia. You see them all over the world. But they kind of stopped being used around the industrial revolution where all of a sudden you had mass produced materials that were very quick to build on site. You kind of prefabricate a a perfect size panel or you just dump all the concrete into a pre manufactured formwork. And the labor on site really gets a lot faster. It gets a lot cheaper. It gets a lot more reliable. You kind of know the engineering behind it. There's a lot more simplicity into building. And that comes, of course, at a lot of financial value but it also comes at a lot of environmental cost. Robots bring the potential of using these materials that are really just too costly to get construction workers to use because now we can say, okay, let's take that that kind of labor and computing aspect out of this and we can understand and build walls autonomously. And this lets us build very large structures using these materials that that otherwise might be discarded.
0: I watched a video that came with a paper and it shows this big machine. It's like 12 tons all by itself gathering rocks, scanning the rocks, putting the wall together. And these are all just the steps you can see. But inside the system, there's even more going on in terms of scanning, mapping, and planning. Can you take us through some of these steps that, you know, an autonomous robot needs to take in order to just build a wall out of rocks that it fence nearby?
1: Here, the idea is that we're building structures using totally irregular materials, as opposed to say a brick, where you know exactly the shape that it's going to be. And, and even still, I think it can be a challenge for, for robots to understand the tolerances that that a brick mason has to deal with. But in this case, we have stones that are very irregular. We use a combination of camera and LIDAR to figure out where these stones are in the world. You can imagine seeing just kind of the top half of a stone that's resting on the ground. Once we see that, we come up with a way of grabbing that stone. We pick the stone up and we kind of spin it around while holding it in the hand, just like you would kind of rolling around to observe all the sides of an object. And while doing that, we collect a a point cloud of the stone that we use to generate a mesh, and then we put that object back down on the ground and we store it in a kind of digital inventory. And we do that for a handful of stones, just like a a mason might collect a, a pile of materials they're building with. And then we use that to plan essentially each stone at a time where that material should go in the wall. And once we deplete that inventory, we repeat that process again.
0: There's basically this getting to know your materials step. But what about once you've ingested the rocks? Once you've scanned the rocks, how does the robot decide which one goes where in the wall?
1: There's a lot of ways that we could approach this problem. We chose a bit of a hybrid approach where, you know, instead of pre-optimizing the whole structure, like looking at all the stones and trying to figure out where they might fit together in, in the kind of perfect wall, we really look at the state of the wall at any given moment. And much like a human mason would do, we we look at the rocks that we have and we try to find which ones fit. And the way that a person usually does that is you kind of look at stones and you see maybe there's some visual feature, like, you know, this one's a bit round and there's kind of a round hole here. We do the same thing using geometric properties, which we pre-compute on the stone. So we find things like, what are the faces? How many faces does this stone have? What are the edges? What are the midpoints and kind of orientations of these spaces and edges? And then also, what are these kind of geometric descriptors that describe how round or how, how square a given area of the stone is? And then we search along the edge of that wall and we find very quickly correspondences, similar geometric features there. And then we we kind of stick the stones there and we use a process of refinement and physics-based simulation to then get the stones to pull into a nice alignment with the wall that we want to build. And then the ones that are most stable and and kind of highest ranked in the end get placed by the robot.
0: So what if the robot goes to place a stone and despite all this physics modeling and scanning and it falls down or it doesn't fit as expected, what does the robot
1: do? That's something where we realized really early on was a benefit of this approach of not pre-solving the entire structure. So if we look at solving a wall with a thousand stones and you come up with the perfect plan for it and then halfway through some bandit comes in and steals one of your stones, it gets very confusing. And we actually had this during construction where a stone would get moved by some other construction worker on the site, or even a rock would break in half, falling onto another stone. We really try to set up the process where as we're building, we're always updating the shape of the wall. So we're using the LIDAR to measure all the stones that we've placed. And if they settle a little bit or they fall off the wall, we update their positions using that LIDAR map to understand where they are. And then we can re-grab them and then re-plan a position for that stone that goes elsewhere in the structure.
0: How does the robot decide that it's a safe wall or does that not the robot's job? Is that your job as like the person in charge of it?
1: Because it was a publicly accessible site, we had to kind of have both human engineers looking at the final wall and saying, yes, I checked this off as sound. But we also use this as an opportunity to test a new process for understanding the stability of large scale walls. So here using a a force torque sensor on the end of the robot and kind of pushing the stones with a threshold force that says if they don't move with a certain threshold force, then they're unlikely to slip under these loads. Uh, And that kind of helped us classify
0: the stability of
1: certain stones within the wall.
0: Right. So you had the robot kick the wall just like we would do. Pretty
1: much. Yeah. And then the robot's definitely a lot stronger than a person. You know, this machine can lift almost 3000 kilos.
0: We keep saying dry building here. That means that there's no mortar, or there's nothing like gluing these stones together.
1: Exactly. So, here basically, we're just using gravity to keep this wall together. And that means that we don't have that additional kind of cementitious content, which can increase the carbon footprint of buildings. It also means that we can build directly with materials that we find without having to import new materials to the site. And also, I think, quite Im- importantly for the concept of circularity and construction is that we can then reuse the structure without having to kind of do any heavy demolition work. We can literally just take those stones which we've already scanned and turn them into something else should that be
0: necessary. One of the things you also built was a retaining wall. So this isn't just freestanding walls, but you can also do this say along the edge of a highway or when you're you're landscaping something large, you can have a robot do that for you.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there's, there's quite a few different structures that you can use on Earth. Retaining walls, freestanding walls, you know, these things can support roofs for things like parking structures or wow. highway barriers. At the same time, we see a lot of interest also in space applications where you have a kind of exaggerated problem of, you know, you don't have the labor resources, materials are, are very expensive, but you have a bunch of rocks on hand that are free. And there we see that for constructing things like blast shields, for landing pads, and various kinds of infrastructure, that this also might be a, a case where a robot can help build stone structures in, in extraterrestrial context.
0: What made you interested in this type of problem in autonomous building?
1: My own background originally is kind of coming from architecture. So I did my early studies in architecture. And there I got familiar early on with the work of my PhD advisors, uh, Fabio Comazio and Matthias Kohler, who were about 15 years ago, doing a lot of work around using industrial robots to build buildings. And one of the amazing things there is that robots gave you the ability to build really complex structures. You could model kind of anything you want using programming in some CAD language, and you could make a building where every facade panel had a different shape or every brick was put at a special angle. For about a decade, the work was really focused on robots allowing us to bring digital complexity into the world. So we could design any shape and we could have it in the real world. And I think that the expertise that that gave us is that through robotics and through programming and computational design, we now can process this complexity of having lots and lots of different geometries, lots of different shapes. Now with the advancement of perception in robotics, we can turn that a little bit on its head and say, instead of bringing complexity into the world, we can have robots that understand the complexity of the world as it is, and then use kind of the irregularity of materials as it exists. So you might have a million different sizes and shapes of stones, and and we can build with those instead of having to, you know, manufacture a million different sizes and shapes of stones.
0: Very cool. Thank you so much, Ryan. This has been super interesting.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Ryan Luke-Johns recently finished his doctoral work at ETH Zurich. You can find a link to the science robotics paper we discussed at science.org podcast. That concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on the apps, search for Science Magazine. Or you can listen to the show on our website, science.org podcast. The show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean. With production help from Podigy, Jeffrey Cook composed the music on behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us.